Tony Campolo, when he was teaching at Eastern College, used to share about a study that was done of people who were 90 years or older. And they learned a whole lot from studying these elderly individuals. We're not talking here people in their 60s or 70s who are retiring. We're not talking about octogenarians. We're talking about folks who are 90 or more. So they asked them all kinds of questions. And when they ask, what has become easier as you've grown older? One guy said, well, there's less peer pressure. <laughs> True, right? But when they ask these dear people what they would do differently, if they had it to do all over again, I think their answer is classic. Consistently, all across the board, they said they would laugh more, risk more, and do more things that would live on after them. Laugh more, risk more, and do more things that would live on after them. Proverbs 17.22 says in the Amplified Bible, a happy heart is good medicine. And as usual, science confirms exactly what the Bible teaches. The University of Maryland did a famous study on the power of laughter, what laughter can do. And their study showed that it's actually good for the heart. Laughter releases chemicals into the bloodstream, the study says, that relax the blood vessels. In addition, there are other benefits. Hearty laughter <coughs> reduces blood pressure and heart rate. It also can improve your immune system, strengthen your cardiovascular system, reduce stress, lift depression, and relieve pain. You know, when you sum it all up, laughter is just good for you physiologically. Hospitals know that. Top leaders of hospitals have instituted humor rooms these comedy carts that go around with gag props and clowns that are frequently invited to come. They have uh, comedy channels on the TV stations. Often laughter is good medicine. And I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but I would just want you to know today that as God designed it, he really wants us to enjoy life. Does that shock you? I mean, he really does. He says clearly in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 that he's given us all these blessings, all these things that we have from God, he's given them to us, in part at least, for our enjoyment. We've been created in his image, and the book of Psalms says that God himself laughs. What an interesting thought. Well, we're in a series where for the last two weeks, we've been posing a poignant question, what would you do if you had just one month to live? And we talked about living passionately. We talked last weekend about loving completely. But today, I want to turn another corner here and talk about laughing regularly. 
You know, there's something about knowing you've got just a few weeks left, I believe that would focus you like nothing else. It would cause you to live perhaps in a way you've never lived before. And I'm absolutely convinced that you would not want it to be a time of gloominess, a time where you focused on the negative. No, no, no. You'd want it to be a time where you shared the joy that God had put in your heart. You'd want it to be a time when you laughed regularly. Today I want us to look at a passage from Philippians chapter 4, which is uh, certainly one of my favorites. And one of the things that makes this passage so powerful to me is what was going on in the life of the Apostle Paul when he wrote it. Those of you who've studied perhaps the book of Philippians at one time or another, maybe in your small group or in a class somewhere, or maybe you just kind of go to it and read it on your own for your personal devotional benefit, perhaps you know that when Paul wrote this, probably uh, around 62 A.D., he was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest, literally chained to a guard 24-7. He had very little freedom. He had the uncertainty about his future, not knowing if he would live 30 more minutes or 30 more years because the emperor in power was Nero. He was the Caesar at the time. Nero's maniacal tendencies were well known. He had his own family members put to death, so a prisoner under Rome, had no certainty about his future whatsoever. On a whim, Paul knew he could be put to death. So you know what? In a sense, he was facing that very question that we've been posing. He knows that his time is likely very, very limited. So in this, from this passage today, I want to make four suggestions to you that I think we would certainly want to do if we wanted to add laughter to our life, if we wanted to go out with great joy. And by the way, since none of us knows the day or the hour that will be our last, I think we need to practice these things on a regular basis anyway. The first thing I would suggest to you, if you want to laugh regularly, is we've really got to learn to share our joy. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. Let's pick this text up, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Would you look at what it says here? Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. So he's repeating it for special emphasis. I, I want everybody to listen up, he's saying. I'm going to repeat this again. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And it's very interesting. If you believed you had one month to live, wouldn't you want it to be a time of rejoicing? No matter how others around you felt, and certainly there would be some grief and sadness going on, you would want to smile as much as possible because you would want to leave a legacy. By the way, huge plug for next weekend. You don't want to miss it. We're going to talk about that very topic leaving a legacy. Because perhaps of all the things we would do, living passionately, loving completely, laughing regularly, we would want to leave a legacy, wouldn't we? You want to know that your life has mattered, that it's made a positive impact. We're going to talk about that next weekend. 
But you'd want it to be a time of joy. You'd want to be at church worshiping with your friends and family every weekend. And more than ever, I know this, you'd want your church experience, your worship, to be a time of vibrancy and joy. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever visited a church, and maybe you were there for the first time, and after about 30 minutes or an hour, you kind of just knew that something was missing, and that something was joy? Has that ever happened to you? You know, some of you have told me your stories, and you've told me that you grew up in churches where there was not a lot of joy. And by the way, news brief, a lack of joy in church is not relegated to any one denomination or faith movement. Many churches do boring quite well, let me tell you. And there's just not a lot of joy. Now, don't misunderstand my intent. We need to have a holy awe and reverence for God, a fear of the Lord, as Scripture says. That's the beginning of wisdom. But we should also, just like a child would crawl up into his or her dad's lap and laugh and smile and feel that joy of being close to the Father we also want to feel that joy, that vibrancy that comes from an interactive relationship. In my opinion, it's a sin to make church boring. It really is. We don't want it to be a dull experience ever. If you can't get excited about the gospel, what can you get excited about? I mean, if you can't get excited, let's, be, let's just be real here. If we can't get excited about the fact that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can have all of our sins forgiven, we can be adopted into his family, and he can actually change us. And I mean really change us. Make us into different people from the inside out. If, if we can't get excited about that, I don't know what we'll ever get excited about. Because that is good news. So church ought to be a place where there is immense joy. Listen, listen, for instance, to how the psalmist described a group of people that was going up to worship God together in community to his house, okay? Here, listen to this description. This is from Psalm 126. Listen to what these people said. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And then the psalmist adds, the Lord has done great things for us and our hearts and we are filled with joy. Now, those phrases kind of jump out at you. Phrases like joy, laughter, our hearts are filled with joy. That's the kind of experience they were having together. Now, we're not suggesting the church should be a comedy club, but it shouldn't be a funeral parlor. I think church and worship ought to reflect two things. It ought to reflect reverence for who God is, but celebration for what he's done. In describing the joy of God that God himself has, 
This passage in Hebrews 1 talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. That's a reference to the joy and the the laughter and the excitement of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to how John Piper, the professor and seminary president, describes that passage as he comments on it. Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. His gladness is greater than all the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. How then can the Bible also claim that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Piper explains, Christ was complex, but he was not confused. There were divergent notes in the music of his soul, but the result was a symphony. Through the agonies of Gethsemane and Golgotha, Jesus was sustained by indestructible joy. And that joy came through. Not only in his contentment as he knew he faced a brutal and agonizing death, it came through in a joyful way. By the way, you know Jesus was very humorous in his teaching. The classic way to do humor in his day was exaggeration, what we call hyperbole. It's an intentional exaggeration to make a point and to use this comedic moment to soften the hearts of the people and get your message across. So, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, listen, why do you worry about the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when you got a plank in your own eye? Trust me, folks. When Jesus taught that to the people 2,000 years ago, they weren't sitting there with hands folded reverently, go, oh, yes, Lord, yes, that's so true. Amen. Amen. No. When they saw this dramatic characterization of hypocrisy being all caught up into the speck in your brother's eye, when all the time you got this plank in your own eye, they were cackling with belly laughs. Because the greater the exaggeration, the more funny it was. Later in his ministry, Jesus said in Matthew 19, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Debbie and I have never been to the Holy Land, but I'm told by many people who've been that when you go to the city of Jerusalem, they'll show you a little door in the wall called the needle's eye or the eye of the needle. And they'll tell you that, yeah, that's what Jesus was talking about. The camels would go through there when the gates were closed and they'd have to strip off all their cargo and all that in order to get through. And, and that's, isn't that a cool illustration of what Jesus was talking about? And so people just assume that, that that's what Jesus was talking about, this little hole in the wall. Well, that sounds really cool and everything, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. That little hole in the wall was added hundreds of years later after Jesus lived on the earth. It did not exist. There's not one shred of historical information to demonstrate that that little hole was there during the time of Jesus. Jesus was talking about a literal sewing needle. This again is hyperbole. It's comedy. 
It's meant to point out, yeah, riches have a way of grabbing your heart, don't they? He's using an intentional exaggeration to make a point. And again, when the people heard it, they were cackling with laughter. It's an awesome thing when you can laugh at yourself. It shows humility. It shows approachability. And never underestimate, friend, what can happen when you laugh regularly and show the joy of Christ in your daily life. I'm convinced that the most winsome Christians are the ones who laugh the most easily. Well, I tell you, those are the kind of people who drew me to Christ. I had some people in my life early on, Sunday school teachers, Erna Powell. She was so quick to laugh, just filled with joy. I had people in the church that I look up to as a kid and respected, and all of them, it seems, had a good sense of humor, and that drew me to Christ. It made Christianity winsome. Proverbs 17 is right. A joyful heart is good medicine. But the rest of that verse says, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Without laughter, we tend to dry up. So I give you this challenge. When you come to church, just make it a habit. From the parking lot to the sanctuary doors, your smiles, your interactions, your positive attitude are going to set a tone for what happens inside the walls of the church. And that's a very powerful thing. And I want to tell you, people can size up in a moment whether you want him, them here or not, whether you're glad they're here, and they can also size it up in a moment, whether you're glad you're here or not. Our attitude's a powerful thing. Second, in order to laugh regularly, I think you'd want to make sure that you had settled your future. Let's look at the text again here in Philippians 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice by the way, that word joy, or one of the derivatives of it in the Greek, is used 16 times in this little book. 16 times in this book of about 104 verses. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, what does that phrase mean, the Lord is near? Because Paul is making a correlation here. You, you can afford to, to be joyful because the Lord is near. Let me, let me just introduce you to a couple of words that are very important. Very, very important. They're the words imminence and imminence. Have you ever seen those words before? Kind of big words. Maybe if you've seen them, you didn't uh, even try to understand them. I don't know. But let me, let me talk about the difference. It's kind of important. One of, the only difference, by the way, in the spelling is an A versus an I. Imminence, the first with the A, means that God is close. It, usually, theologians, when they're talking about that word, use the word to show the opposite of God's transcendence. God is holy. He's holy other. He's out there. He's different from us. He's far away. He's the creator, the mighty one, and we're not. We're, he's so different. And imminence means the opposite. He's close. He's called us friends. He's in us. He's also among us. He's right here in the service right now. All of those things are talking about imminence. God is close, and that's a cool thing. 
that he actually knows the number of hairs in our heads. He knows all about us and loves us anyway. Isn't that an awesome thing? That's what we mean by immanence. But this word is totally different. Immanence with an I is a chronological word. So whenever you see this word, it's talking about something is close chronologically. It's about to happen. So often in theological books, you will see the Lord's coming is imminent. It's not that word, it's this word. Meaning the Lord is near. Now, which one of those words is Paul thinking about when he says the Lord is near here in Philippians 4? Most scholars, although we would readily acknowledge that both of them are true for Paul. He knows that God is right there with him in that imprisonment, and that is keeping him going. He knows that. Most scholars believe he's talking about this word right there, that the Lord's coming is near, and that makes all the difference in the world. Because you see, Paul had settled his future. Now, let me get real personal with you. Have you settled your future? Do you know? Do you really know? And do you know that you know that you're saved, that your sins are forgiven, that you're on the way to heaven? It's amazing how many people don't have that confidence. I've found that even in a a Christian church that's totally devoted to the biblical teaching and the gospel of Jesus, I've found that at least 20% of the people don't have that sort of buoyant confidence that their future is settled. It was June the 16th, a Father's Day, 1974, that I was struggling with what I was going to do with Christ. I'd been convicted for a long, long time, knowing I had to make a choice. I was 13 years old, but boy, God had been so clear to me about the gospel and that he wanted me. He loved me, but I was still wanting to run my own life as a 13-year-old. And I struggled with that all that day, gripped with conviction. I went to church that night on a Sunday night, and during an invitation hymn, I walked down the aisle. I was the only person who came. I can even remember what I was wearing. I knelt on the front pew that was there, and I prayed some sort of simple sinner's prayer all by myself. Nobody prayed with me at that point. I just prayed a prayer all by myself. And I knew that my future was settled. And can I tell you what I remember? I literally remember this all these years later. The, uh, there were many feelings and a lot of joy and a lot of tears and a lot of brokenness. But the overriding feeling, you know what the main feeling was as I walked out of that church building that evening? Here was the main feeling I had that still is with me to this very moment. Wow, my future is settled now. I literally remember having the thought, it doesn't matter what happens to me now. My sins are forgiven. My future destiny is settled. That's what I believed. Have you ever settled your future? You see, Christians should be enjoying life more than anyone. But the main reason for that is because their future is settled. 
And so this gives you this confidence, this buoyancy in life. That things don't bug you as much because you know that the biggest issue of all has been settled. I hope you get that. And I know that hundreds of you listening to me right now, you get what I'm saying. You understand that because it's happened to you. It just makes all the difference in the world. Uh, I like what the writer in Proverbs 31 says of this virtuous woman. I love this phrase. It says she can laugh at the days to come. Isn't that a great phrase? She's not all caught up with worry and stuff. She can laugh at the days to come. Her future is settled. She's prepared for the future. So all is well. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Make sure that your future is settled. That, by the way, is the number one thing you'd want to do if you knew you had just a month to live. But let's quickly go on. I want to quickly, very quickly, mention a third thing. And that is, in order to laugh regularly, you would really need to kind of keep your perspective. Let's read on here in verse 6 of our text. We, we would want to keep our perspective. Notice what Paul says. Now remember, he's in prison. He's literally chained to a guard 24-7, a maniacal ruler on the throne who, who is prone to erratic decisions on a whim. He has family members put to death. So Paul, Paul knows that his future is very uncertain but in terms of Nero, but his future with the Lord and for eternity is settled. So look at what he says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Very, very interesting. Paul there, I think, is talking about a perspective that we can have that, that kind of keeps anxiety at bay. We don't sweat the small stuff. You say, but pastor, how do you know what the small stuff is? Here's the question I ask. Will this really matter a hundred years from now. Or you could ask it this way in light of our series. That's the question I always ask. If I had only a month to live, would this really matter? My receding hairline wouldn't bother me as much. <laughs> It'd be no big deal because it would take a back seat to bigger issues. Your frustration over that area in your backyard where grass just doesn't seem to go, grow or maybe your dog killed it. I don't know. It just wouldn't bug you quite as much. Your brother-in-law's annoying laugh, as much as it grates on you, you'd probably make him try to make him laugh if you knew you had a month to live. I heard a guy this week who was talking about his wife getting a traffic ticket, a speeding ticket. He blurted out, she was going 81 in a 55. He was upset. I get it. 
But if you knew you had a month to live, big deal. A little ticket. You wouldn't complain about your mom's cooking. You wouldn't point out your coworkers' idiosyncrasies. Why? Because you would have it all in perspective if you knew you just had a month to live. You would not sweat the small stuff. I was at a basketball game several weeks ago with a friend. We were sitting there kind of side by side. He was on my left. There was a guy in front of us with two or three kind of teenage people with him. And this guy did not have perspective. Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen someone like this? Maybe at a ball game or somewhere or maybe in a traffic jam. They just don't have perspective. And he was going ballistic because his team was getting farther and further behind. And the expletives were coming. And, and he was just, every time they'd miss a shot, he would just go crazy. And, and I was more concerned about the young people that apparently he'd brought to the game. And what kind of example he was setting for them. But, but here was a guy, this game was everything to him it seemed. Not if you had just a month to live. A game would just be a game. That's all. A minor annoyance would just be a minor annoyance. That's all. The old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that would be the case if you knew your days were truly numbered. I was at the checkout place recently. I was in a big hurry. You know the checkout lines in grocery stores that say 10 items or less? You know those? Oh, this killed me. I was there. I looked all up and down. This place was jammed. There were people with carts full of stuff. I just had a few items, less than 10 items. I wanted to get out of it. I thought about going to self-check. It was full. So I just stuck here in this line. And I started counting the items. <laughs> that guy in front of me had 14 items. What is he doing? This is 10 items or less. And I just felt my face getting flush red. <laughs> what is this? You don't belong in this line. I thought, I thought about confronting him right there. No, no, no. It wouldn't bother you if you just had a month to live. You would have all these kind of things in perspective and you wouldn't sweat them so much. One final thing. If we're talking about learning to, to laugh more, to laugh regularly, we would want to truly enjoy the blessings that we have, wouldn't we? We try to treasure every moment. Every conversation would become more special. We would want to surround ourselves with things that were good and not bad. Let's look at this final section from the passage here. Philippians 4. And the peace of God. This is an amazing promise, by the way. Which passes, transcends all understanding. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on here to describe what we should think about. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know what I know about you? If you knew you had a month to live, you would not spend your time 
dwelling on negatives. So why do you do it so much now? Why do we not live more like we had just a month to go? Our lives would be so much better in so many ways. You'd want to focus on the positive all you could. You wouldn't complain every day about the temperature. It's too hot. It's too cold. You wouldn't complain about the way young people dress these days. You'd want to leave this world with a good taste in your mouth. If you had only a month to live, you'd soak up the beauty around you. You would pause about sundown and gaze at that gorgeous sunset and all those colors bursting on the horizon. You'd do that. Why don't we do it more now? Isn't it a weird thing that before we could even say a word as babies, we could laugh and cry. I believe God has built laughter into our DNA. I want you to watch a 90-second video with me right now of some babies teaching us how to laugh. goodness way to go kids yeah good stuff or you could say a word you could laugh you could cry Solomon says in Ecclesiastes there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance and while there are times to be sad and to grieve and grieve well and indeed times that we are to mourn, I think we'd want to do a lot more laughing if we had just a month to live. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy, catch that word, this is talking about Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of God. Have you ever wondered about that verse, what it means? What does it mean when it says the joy that was set before Jesus? Why did he endure the cross? What didn't Jesus have before his death on the cross that he had after his death? And the answer is you. The answer is you. He couldn't look forward to being with you in heaven for all eternity until he had died on the cross for your sins and risen again. He died to pay the penalty that your sins and mine require. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author says here, who for the joy set before him. If you were his joy, he could become your joy. But as I wrap all this up today, I just want to say one sobering word at the end. I guess this is kind of a bad way to end a sermon on laughter. But I can't help but add it. Because the Bible says there's one person, just one person who ought not to laugh. Did you know that? Just one person says the book of James should not be laughing. It says cleanse your sins, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to to gloom. The one person, according to the Bible, that should not laugh is the person who has not yet repented. Because you haven't settled your future and you don't have the perspective that a relationship with Christ can bring and that joy that he puts in the heart of the people who are following him, you probably don't understand that. But when you give your life to him, he will take the deepest sadness of your heart and turn it into gladness. And let me tell you, that's a reason to rejoice. Could we pray together? Father, I pray for everyone out there right now who might be in that situation of never having repented, of never having acknowledged, I need forgiveness of sins. I need God in my life. I need an anchor. I need a perspective that's higher than this world. May this be the moment, may this be the day when they truly come to the end of themselves, repent, and turn their life over to you. And Lord, would you turn their mourning into dancing? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.